1: Kevin is a retired United States Army Lieutenant Colonel who has studied UFOs for more than 50 years. His military training has provided him with unique insight into military operations and UFO research. Kevin has investigated many of the most mysterious cases and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries and been interviewed on hundreds of radio and television programs about UFOs. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Roswell UFO crash, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including Roswell in the 21st Century and Encounter in the Desert, a re-examination of the Socorro UFO landing. Now here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: And welcome to this 103rd edition of A Different Perspective. I say that because I counted up the shows I'd done the other day because I was looking to see when we'd hit the 100 mark and I missed it. So we've done more than 100 shows here uh, on A Different Perspective and involved many, many different guests on many, many different topics. So I hope you've enjoyed that. I am joined today by Jan Harzon, who is the executive director of MUFON. He's been a member of that organization for a very long time and has worked at administration of MUFON for many years. His interest in UFOs was inspired by his one sighting, and that not only sparked an interest in UFOs, but his lifelong work. Jan Harzan, welcome to A Different Perspective.
3: Great to be here, Kevin. Thanks for having me on your show.
2: Well, you know, I've got to have somebody on the show, so it might as well be you.
3: Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah.
2: How was that for a really ego boost there?
3: <laughs> I'm always It's always a pleasure to, to come on and talk about my favorite subject, UFOs. Well,
2: oh, I <laughs> thought you'd say my favorite subject was me, but that's a whole different topic.
3: Well, UFOs and Kevin Randall, yes. It's rolled one <laughs> off to the other, right?
2: <laughs> yes. I don't know. i just gotten bizarre all of a sudden. Nothing was. Everything was serious, and all of a sudden I fell off the serious boat. So there you go. Um, One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is uh, to learn something about the number of UFO reports as opposed to good reports, meaning are you finding that you're getting a lot more reports uh, than in the past? Is it kind of holding steady or are you finding that many of the sightings that are reported can be explained in the mundane? What's What's the trend going on in the world of UFOs?
3: Well, from an overall reporting perspective, we're seeing it pretty much steady as she goes for the past 10, 12 years. Uh, we get between 500 to 1,000 reports a month, and that tends to ebb and flow. In the summer months, we get more, and in the winter months, we get less. Uh, but I have not seen any fall off. In fact, it's been very, very constant. What has changed, I think, is our investigative uh, capabilities, which I think is pairing a lot more IFOs out of the data database. So. When we investigate a case, we end up putting it in one of five dispositions, either a hoax, insufficient data, information only, unknown, uh, and uh, IFO, so identified flying object. We can identify about 30 to to 34% as identified flying objects, which would be airplanes, International Space Station, Iridium satellites, things like that, or... Uh, natural phenomenon like the planet Venus, um, s- space debris, things things of that nature.
2: It kind of, uh, you, you mentioned hoaxes, I guess, and I was yeah. wondering, do you get many hoaxes? It, it's about three to five
3: percent, you know, and they're typically pretty easy to spot because when people report a hoax, they're generally making up a story. Um, so the languaging that you read is different than the typical language you would read Um, If I showed you a a hoax case versus a non-hoax case, you can kind of tell that someone's making this up. And when you confront them, they generally fold and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize someone was going to check up on this. Yeah, I I, I was just being funny here, uh, writing a story. So, So yeah, hoaxes are pretty simple, actually.
2: Do, is there a demographic involved in the number of hoaxes? I mean, is there a specific uh, age group of gender who might be more responsible for hoaxes?
3: <laughs> it tends to be younger and it tends to be male. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> if that's what you're asking. yes.
2: Precisely, and because I've noticed myself um, looking at UFO photographs, especially those from the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, that uh, about 99% of them were submitted by teenage boys, and 99% of those were hoaxes. And some that had lasted for decades as legitimate UFO sightings have since been uh, proven to be hoaxes.
3: Right. Uh, Well, and that's the big difference with MUFON. You know, we investigate these things. So we reach out and make sure we have a real witness. We, We check out their credentials. We look for corroborating evidence. I mean, a lot of UFO sites that just collect data It's pretty useless if you don't actually reach out and contact the witness and find out more about them.
2: Well, I was going to say, you know, something about the vetting. Do you do any vetting of the witnesses at all? I mean, checking their backgrounds to see what if they have a a, a propensity for hoaxing things?
3: Well, I mean, we we, we check the different databases to see if they've reported things other places. Um, I mean, we don't run a background check on them, but we'll ask them. Certain questions we might try to look them up in white pages to see if they if they really are there just the fact that they answer their phone is a big step forward because uh, traditionally a hoax they won't they won't answer their phone or they won't give you a phone number that works or they won't give you an email that actually goes anyplace so that's one clue that you've got a hoax on your hands is when you can't reach the witness I'd say that's the number one way to find out you've got a hoax
2: well, the other thing that springs to mind on this is do you vet the people who claim military backgrounds? And yeah, we I asked. asked that, well,
3: yeah, depending asked, on the story. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. I was going to say I, the reason I asked this is because I've run into so many people uh, in my in my career and what I've been doing, whether they claim some kind of a military background or claim high rank or they claim to have been somewhere uh, to add to their credibility. And it turns out they're making the stuff up. I think, you know, Robert Willingham comes immediately to mind who claimed to have been involved in the Del Rio crash and um, pictures of him in uniform. But it turns out he was in the Civil Air Patrol, which is not to denigrate the Civil Air Patrol as a fantastic organization. But he was trying to pass himself off as an Air Force officer to sort of um, add to his credibility. And the thing that uh, uh, got me was he'd, he'd signed an affidavit about his events and when you went back to check on his background and absolutely nobody had done it until I did you found out that he had been in the army for like 13 months and so that kind of uh, undermined his undermined his credibility to me at least
3: absolutely and we're starting to see more military witnesses come forward not that we haven't always had military witnesses but if it's if it's a pretty phenomenal story we always ask to see the DD-214, right, where, where they've been, to see if they really were where they said they were at the time they had their sighting. Uh, but if it's just a common type of a sighting, uh, we generally don't go to that great length. I mean, we're just interested in, in that, there, that there really are who they say they are, that they really did see what they saw. Usually there's other witnesses you could talk to, a wife, a spouse, a son, um, so we haven't had a lot of trouble with that, but yes, for military witnesses, we do have many times go to the second step, which is to ask for the DD-214.
2: But oftentimes, and I've, I've noticed this in my work, that they fake their DD Form 214s, and you really need to get an independent copy from St. Louis, and that's what what happened with Willingham. Uh, the the, do, the documents were there, pictures of him in the uniform, but you had to go a little bit beyond that to learn the truth about him. I mean, the one picture I don't think anybody ever noticed uh, when you got when you looked at it carefully, you could see the C.A.P. on his collar as opposed right. to the U.S. and uh, things like that. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, uh Frank Kaufman gave us his what would have been his separation documents in World War II. It wasn't the he formed 214. And when we went to St. Louis to get him, we found out that he had altered them. So you have to be very, very careful. In fact, Willingham had altered any number of documents as well. And so you have to be very careful about that.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and the more incredible the story, the more careful you want to be. Right. I mean, that's that's absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I I would agree. I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, No. The interesting thing, Kevin, is we are seeing more military witnesses come forward uh, because of the shows on TV, specifically unidentified, where you've got the Navy pilots and the radar operators and other folks willing to go on camera. And many of these folks are seeing these people on camera saying, well, if it's okay for them to talk, it must be okay for me to talk. And they're starting to share their experiences when they were in the military or or current experiences. So I find that very encouraging, actually.
2: Well, well, the thing that strikes me there is um, Pappy Henderson, who was involved in the Roswell case, uh, was in the supermarket and found the story of the Roswell crash in one of the tabloids there. And he said to his wife, well, if they're printing it in the newspaper, it's okay for me to talk about it. But since it had been classified, very highly classified, he was wrong on that point. Yes. Um, the fact that it was in the newspaper didn't uh, didn't give him permission to talk. And I, I, I'm sure some of these other people are probably in the same boat, that they think they have permission to talk about it, but maybe do not. Yeah, which makes we, the story we, more interesting, I guess. Right.
3: And we don't, we don't encourage people to... Uh... Obviously, we don't want anyone going to jail for for violating a security oath, but um, there people do want us to share this, particularly as they get older in years. Kevin, I find this is that as they get up in their 80s, uh, they start to realize I don't have too many years in front of me. And so it's important for me to share what I know. The hard part is, depending on how far the story goes, is how do you corroborate it? How do you. We had a gentleman share with us the fact that he was on duty and and was in a location as a special forces guy where he saw military guys materialize out of a wall and then two aliens come out of the wall behind them. Well, that's an interesting story. And yes, he is who he said he is and yes, his DD-214 and things like this, but how do you corroborate that kind of a testimony? It's just very difficult. I mean-
2: Well, that's that's a very good question and we'll answer it when we come back in just a few minutes. I've got to take a break here. Um, this is, of course, a different perspective. If you want more information about what we're talking about today, I'm at uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And, of course, you can uh, check the MUFON site, which is probably MUFON.com or www.mufon.com. Just type MUFON into your search engine. You'll be able to get there. And when we get back, I'm going to want to talk about uh, more about this military stuff. And you mentioned the uh, Tic Tac and that sort of thing. So we'll chat that up as well when we come back. So stick around hello.
3: Yeah. did I skip on the No.
5: Yeah.
0: Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course.
5: We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com
4: Shamanic healing is the key to personal empowerment. Why? All four levels of our being physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, must be addressed for us to enjoy balanced, healthy, abundant lives. Yet there are few provisions for spiritual or energetic healing. Shamanism, found at the root of all cultures, is a very effective spiritual healing modality. To find quality shamanic healing you can trust, regardless of where you live, look no further than find your Path Home Long Distance Shamanic Healing Program. All Path Home Long Distance Healing Practitioners have been trained and certified through Path Home Shamanic Art School. Change your life. Live abundantly. Schedule a long-distance shamanic healing session with Gwilda Wiecka or one of her quality practitioners today at FindYourPathHome.com.
2: I am joined by Jan Harzan, He, the executive director of MUFON, who will give you the exact um, Web address for MUFON, but I know if you just type MUFON into any search engine, you'll get right to it. When we went away, you just mentioned a bizarre story of a Green Beret, a Special Forces guy, seeing soldiers material out of a wall wall and aliens following behind him. What sort of credibility does MUFON give to that tale, that particular tale?
3: Well, at the present time, none until we can get some corroborating evidence or something else to, to back it up. So... It's, it's just an interesting story at this point you know, that we're currently chasing down. And this, this is something that just came to us in the last couple of weeks, so it's, it's still under investigation. But, um, I mean, these are the kind of things that you get from people, right? I mean, this is the far extreme. Uh, the general is that you know, I was on a military duty and we saw a craft over the battlefield or we saw something light up this or that. You know? It's more mundane kind of stuff. This, this would be much more extreme, in my opinion. Can you give us a
2: time frame for the story?
3: Um, You know, I can't, actually. But it it, it was when he was on active duty. He's now retired. He's in his 80s. And he just felt like he should tell someone the story. So the question is, is it just a story or did it really happen? And we're trying to chase down the facts behind it.
2: Um, You verified his military service, obviously.
3: Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Definitely,
2: and that he was special forces. I did you contact the special forces for your school at um, at Camp Lejeune at uh, no Camp McCall. I'm sorry, Camp McCall, which is at, I think Fort Bragg, no, and they have a list of everybody who was in the special forces to verify whether or not he was actually in the special forces.
3: Yeah, we haven't yet, Kevin. I mean, literally, this is like happening as we speak, so it's still under investigation. But again, I'm I'm, I'm struggling in my mind with so how do we prove this even happened if there was no other witness to it. And, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to put it out on the front page of the MUFON website, but but I'm just sharing these are the kinds of stories we do get, right, from people. They're, they're not common, but we do get them. And we try to investigate them to the best of our abilities to figure out if there's anything there, if there's any there there, right? Uh, so well, I would think
2: I would think that if you had subpoena power, it'd be much simpler to do some of these things. I've yeah. often thought I've yeah. often thought that you know, uh, yeah. y- you look at the television and the, 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 they're investigating something. So, well, if you don't answer my questions, we'll get you a subpoena. And I'm thinking that would be a nice, nice thing to be able to pull out of the bag. Here's your subpoena now. Will you answer my questions?
3: Well, yeah, but they, it's not the matter of answering the questions. They'll answer the questions. The question you have to ask yourself is what what's the credibility what's the factor behind this you know was this something they dreamt was it something that really happened if it really happened you know what were the circumstances behind it who else was in in the vicinity or might have seen the same thing or knows more about what they saw um it's it's probably the part of the intrigue why people get involved in the whole ufo field because it's so strange right the things that happen are so strange that uh it's uh particularly if it's ever happened to you personally right and if you've had any paranormal activity or you've had any uh, close encounter with a craft yourself i mean th- this is what drives a lot of people who are in this
2: field what's uh some of the really bizarre stories you've gotten recently that you that you think may be true as opposed to we're still investigating i mean something that's really out of the out of this world so to speak
3: well i i mean i, I mean i don't know there's anything that's completely out of this world but uh we had another gentleman report to us that uh that He was in the uh, Navy with a uh, high school buddy of his and they had a conversation many years later because they were in different parts of the service and his buddy was in the Submariner service and he commented to his buddy, who was the guy on the phone with us, saying, you know, if you've ever seen the sub on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, uh, or Fantastic Voyage, I think, he said, we have submarines just like that, uh, but ours fly. So we're in the process of chasing that lead down. I mean, submarines that fly. sounds a little bit like what William uh, Tompkins was talking about in his book Selected by Extraterrestrials when he claims to back in the 40s and 50s to have designed long tubular craft for the U.S. Navy that were supposed to be spaceships, which in itself seems like a fantastic story. So you're trying to put all these puzzle pieces together. Uh, I think that's about as bizarre as it gets. But... I would say we don't have any facts to back it up as yet. We haven't spoken to the first-hand witness and we don't even know if he was really a firsthand witness. He might've heard the story from someone else. So, you, you know, when you pull the string and you go back and back and back uh, you kind of get to the core of the story. It, it kind of reminds me of the game we used to play in grade school where the teacher would have you play telephone They whisper something into one person's ear. and would go around the classroom. By the time it came out the other end, it was a completely different story. Uh, so we always have to know, who really was there? What did they really see? And were there any corroborating witnesses there that could testify to the same extent? So we chased well, that down.
2: When if you, you want say- to talk
3: about cases, I mean, one of the incredible cases I think we've got in our files is case 74282, which came to us in 2015, although it happened in 2013. And it happened in Canada, our favorite uh, neighbor to the north. And it was a... CEO for a defense contractor uh, in the Midwest, and he was up bear hunting with his two friends. And as they were finishing the day, they came, climbed down out of the tree. Uh, I guess they had some kind of a lookout up there with a tree with guns. And they were driving back, and they ran smack into a large barbell-shaped UFO, 170 feet long, by about 40 feet wide, by 30 feet tall. And it was completely smooth, and it had ac current b- purple or blue ac current arcing over the surface of the ship and it was spinning as it moved down the roadway and he caught it on his camera his, his sony video camera. when he first tried to photograph it it was about 400 feet away and both his cell phone and his sony cam would not turn on they were they were shut off i assume because of the emf radiation coming off the craft but as it got about a quarter of a mile away which would be about 1200 feet his camera turned back on, and he was able to capture it on the camera. Now, when he replayed the camera, there was no image there, but he could see the pulsing of the engines uh, on the video, and he was able to take that video and analyze it to find out, in his words, that how this thing was propelling itself was through two super electromagnetic uh, electromagnetics uh, that were being pulsed at 123 hertz. And I don't know if there's anything secret to that or how that works, but somehow this thing was levitated and it was moving down a track and he was able to track it with his buddies. Um, It really profoundly changed his life. He was not a UFO believer. Uh, In fact, he had no interest in UFOs at all, but it it almost took over. It's almost like the uh, uh, Richard Dreyfus in the movie... um,
2: Close Encounters.
3: Yeah, Close Encounters of the Third Kind where all of a sudden... He went nuts trying to analyze his video and tearing it apart. He did a whole bunch of uh, short clips, which we put on our website for a long time. I I think they should still be there, Um, but you could watch him and and see his analysis of these spikes that he got on the camera. And I remember at one point he was going to go try to figure out if there was a way to phase shift the image uh, or the uh, signal on the camera back to a point where the image would reappear. I don't believe he was ever successful in doing that, but That's just such a solid case because you had three witnesses seeing this all, uh, testifying to it, and then you had the the, the, uh, camera footage and the analysis of the actual engine. Um, Interestingly enough, he had asked me about my own sighting, which happened back in 1965, because the craft my brother and I saw was making a humming noise. So it had some kind of a resonant frequency going on, and he asked me to go do uh, an analysis of that and basically download a... uh, They have these... um, things on the computer you can download, which you can basically run the uh, lever back and forth, and you can ratchet up the the sound from, you know, I don't know, 100 hertz up to, you know, several thousand hertz, and you can hear the sound, and he asked me to put it to the level where I thought it was, and I told him uh, I did that, and I was at about 100 hertz, and I told him that before he replied back to me that the craft they saw was 123 hertz, So there seems to be something to do with the frequency of the pulsing of these engines and how they are able to do that, or at least one approach to levitating objects.
2: But you would have to say that um, this really doesn't get us to the extraterrestrial, does it?
3: No, it doesn't. It could be our our own craft. Now, he did not think so because he, in his job, was building weapons for the CIA and for the military. And... So he had contacts within the intelligence community. And he asked them, you know, I saw this craft. Is it okay for me to talk about it? And they told him, sure, uh, it's not ours. So sure, you can go ahead and talk about it. Now, you and I understand compartmentalization. And it certainly could have been ours. And it just they didn't have any need to know that it was ours. Uh, But he didn't think it was ours because when he looked at the structure of the craft, it was completely seamless. And this seems to be... But in my opinion, this seems to be the dividing line between something we've built and something they've built. Uh, I don't believe we have the technology to make things that are completely seamless. I mean, maybe with the latest carbon fiber stuff that they're building the 787s out of, maybe that looks seamless because there's no rivets rivets or bolts in it. But, um, yeah, he definitely thought looking at the structure of this craft, because he was so close to it, that it was not something made here on this planet.
2: But I would argue that the SR-71 Blackbird, which is still holds speed records and altitude records and all kinds sure. of stuff, was 1950s technology. Right. And and we didn't, we, meaning the, the general public, didn't know about the existence of this thing at the time, and having seen it and the, the uh, um, silhouette of it, would certainly suggest something that might be alien. And and we could make the same argument. Well, I don't think it was ours because we don't have anything like that around there. And yet here was something that we did in fact have, and that's basically 1950s technology.
3: Well, yeah, and so it's really materials technology. Uh, do we have the ability to take materials and reform it in a different set? So you don't need, so you can combine things and not have to attach them and put rivets in it. I find it I find it fascinating that the Lockheed Skunk Works' last product was. Uh, in 19- I'm going to
2: have to I'm going to break in here. We're going to have to uh, take a break, and we will be back right after this with Jan Herzon, uh executive director of MUFON, and take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. We will be back right after this with Jan Herzon. I'm chatting with Jan Herzon, him of MUFON, and I keep promising to give the official website address. Jan, why don't you plug it oh, in it's right just,
3: now? it's MUFON.com. Simple. Okay. MUFON.com. Well,
2: I wanted to make sure we had that right um, so people could find that. And that kind of uh, brings me to another question. I think we're kind of I'm falling off the track we were falling a moment ago. But uh, the TTSA, the To the Stars Academy, Sure. which is beginning an awful lot of publicity and an awful lot of press. Has that um, uh, kind of sucked uh, UFO reports away from MUFON or uh, are, uh, good information going to them instead of coming to you? Is there any kind of relationship between your organization and theirs?
3: Yeah, well, so to answer the first question, no, no it hasn't. In fact, if anything, it's actually creating more of a buzz uh, amongst the military and the folks who want to report things, and they're, they're, they do come to us. Uh, They do have on their show, they ask for people to uh, reach out to them. The the problem or challenge they have is that it's Lou Elizondo and Lou Elizondo and and Lou Elizondo. So, you know, when you have 200 people wanting to talk to you, uh, it's hard to do that with one person. Uh, So I think that's a bit of a challenge for them. But I think the good news is uh, they're making some headway. They're getting some good stuff done. And I'm 100 percent supportive of everything that they're doing. So uh, I think there's plenty of room here for um, an organization like TTSA to do what it's doing. They see their mission is different than what MUFON's mission is. And uh, we can talk about that. Uh, but yeah, we don't have any formal working relationship, but, but we do talk to each other occasionally on different topics. Um, so, I mean, that's all I can say. I mean, it's... it's
2: Well, that was that was a question I was going to ask. Is there any communication? Uh, have they reached out to you? You reached out to them and you say, yes, you have.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I talked to Chris and Lou on a regular basis, on different top topics and different things, um, but you know they do what they do and we do what we do. It's it's uh, two separate organizations doing doing their following their mission statements. I, I think you know I don't want to speak on behalf of TTSA, but what I see them wanting to do is create um, a media company that puts out information on the subject. And uh, so far, everything I've seen them put out looks very credible to me, and it's not trying to push any agenda one way or the other. Uh, but also uh, they want to delve deeper into the science behind it and uh, with physicists and folks to ultimately uh, build one of these uh, build one of these crafts. Uh, that's what I'm seeing on their website and reading what they're talking about. So uh, more power to them. I mean, we're not trying to move on, trying to build stuff. We're trying to be more of a public service group, nonprofit, that is a place where people can come, bring their sighting reports, uh, more importantly, bring their um, non-human interaction reports, and have an a, um, empathetic ear to listen and to capture that and provide them whatever they need, whether it be um, counseling services, uh, reporting services. I mean, folks, when they have a very close encounter, it is very traumatic to most people if they're not expecting it. And so they need someone to speak to. And it's, typically, they can't talk to their spouse about it. They can't talk to their children about it. They certainly can't talk to their employer about it. So they have nowhere to turn, and MUFON is that place to turn. And so we see ourselves as providing that service to the general public.
2: Well, have you uh, have you talked to them about the um, information being circulated on the internet, especially from the skeptical side of the uh, aisle, that the uh, Tic Tac, the the Nimitz sighting, that's been solved by some kind of uh, drone project or secret um, maybe secret army drone project or something like that? Have you talked to them at all about that?
3: I have, in fact, and um, here's the thing that people need to understand is that, um, first off, both Lou and Chris had admin access to the black budget. They saw every project that was there because they needed to in their respective jobs. Chris as a deputy secretary of defense uh, on the Senate Select Intelligence Committee as a staffer, and Lou as the head of the ATIP program for 10 years. They needed to know what was out in the sky and what was being funded by the military, uh, the, the Pentagon, the Department of Defense. Um, no such craft are in that in that system, from my understanding, and asking them direct, direct questions about what you've just said. Now, uh, if there were, it, it would be how did they get around the funding process? You know, how did how were they able to build this to that extent? Uh, The more important thing is that we've got craft in our skies, which our military pilots can't identify, and they're basically running circles around us. Why isn't Congress more concerned about this? Why isn't this being reported? If this were the Russians or the Chinese, uh, this would be a violation of our airspace. And so why aren't we seeing more of this being uh, handled at high levels within our government? Because right now it's pretty much being ignored.
2: Well, can you say it's being ignored, or could it be that the these sort of events are so highly classified that only very few people at the very top are aware of them, and that doesn't uh, drain into or leak into the uh, public arena?
3: Well, I'm seeing a very disturbing trend, and that is, is, I'm, I'm as I hear some of these stories, uh, data is being gathered and destroyed uh, with regard to these interactions. Uh, which is very concerning to me because it's, of course, one way you keep things secret is you destroy all records to it. So no one has any physical evidence to put forth uh, to prove something's true or not true. So, I, you know, I, I guess it's possible, Kevin, but I honestly think that that's not what's happening. For whatever reason, uh, the powers that be, when I say that, I'm talking about people at the military, commanders of these ships uh, and, and different bases are going out of their way to basically destroy the evidence and so that it's not not available there. I mean, the fact that the Reynolds and happened and we have records, there's only because a couple of the soldiers and, and officers were able to document this and get it in the official U.S. Air Force records uh, and then call for it because they knew where it was. Otherwise, we wouldn't know about that.
2: Well, I think we would have known, well, had it not involved the people that it involved and had the things not transpired the way it did, we certainly wouldn't know about it and had uh, Colonel Halt, who will be on the program next week, by the way.
3: Yeah, well, that'd be awesome.
2: um, (laughs) Hadn't written the letter and it uh, been discovered by some of our British colleagues. And then no, we probably wouldn't be talking about Rendlesham Forest at all.
3: But we know that these craft are seen around military installations, nuclear power plants and places where anti-gravity research is being done. So just take the first one, military bases there's a ton of activity around our military bases. So how many more Reynolds from forests have there been that we are not even aware of? I mean, that because they were able to suppress records or, or keep the people quiet about talking about it. Um, of course, the other one I love is the 1967 uh, sighting up at uh, Montana. Uh,
2: Belt, Montana. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, Maelstrom Air Force Base.
3: Exactly. And we've got Robert Salas, who just lives a few miles from MUFON headquarters here, who was in the um, I don't know what they call it, but the Missile command center, silo. yes, 60, 60 feet underground of steel and concrete, and watched it as this craft shut off all the missiles. Uh, he says, we don't even know how to do that, let alone how a craft could have done that.
2: Well, when I talked to Robert Salas, he wasn't sure they shut off all the missiles. They may only shut off most of them, which is still a big deal. Right. Uh, he, he and his commander, the, he was the deputy commander in the silo, Um disagreed on how many missiles were shot off. I think he believes all of them were shut off, and the the commander said it was a, a percentage of them. But no matter what it was, that, of course, impinges on national security. And that would be something you wouldn't want out, not because it's a UFO sighting, but because of the national security aspect that somebody can shut off our missiles from the outside.
3: Correct. And and it's not a matter of flipping a switch and they're back online. They had to bring in Boeing, who was the uh, contractor for maintaining the ICBMs to uh, spend literally several days, if not a a week or more, turning all the missiles back on that had been switched off. Um, And, of course, there was a study done, uh, commissioned by one of the generals, to find out how this happened. And my understanding is that study never saw the light of day because they didn't like the conclusion.
2: Well, but if the conclusion is they figured out how to do it, they certainly wouldn't want to put that out in a public arena for all our competitors in the world to learn about.
3: But and I that think would it be some... more, and We have to ask Robert this question because I don't want to speak for him, but I believe it was more along the lines of uh, it wasn't us and it wasn't the Russians and it wasn't the Chinese. And so it was some, this craft which no one knows where it came from. And because of the unknown part of it, they didn't want to actually publish that actual report.
2: Well, what I'm saying simply is, it's a matter of national security. Correct. Oh, I agree. no matter 100%. how no matter how you slice it, who it was, it's a matter of national security. And by regulation, the military yep. people can't ca- talk about these things that impinge upon national security. It's it's the great it's the great cover up story. You, I can't tell you about that. It's a national security issue.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I'm all for national security. I think it's important that we uh, respect that and we. Uh, Keep things secret that need to be secret. The question is, do, do the fact that UFOs are real and they're here and they're flying around our skies, does that need to be kept secret? I think the answer is no, in my opinion. Uh, now, maybe how they operate and how they work, perhaps even where they're from is, is uh, national security. I'm not sure. Uh, but I think it's certainly okay to let the American public know and the world know that these craft are real and they are here visiting us on a regular basis. I don't think we have any... Well, I don't believe we have anything to fear from that, although I know there are many people out there believing that this might be a threat and we need to take action. But I mean, that's to me, that's just the job of the military. Their job is to look at everything as a threat. You know, even the Russians and Chinese are a threat. And yet I have people from China coming over in my neighborhood and buying homes and living there with me. So, I mean, if if they're a threat, I don't see it as a threat. They're a neighbor. They're my neighbor. But the military looks at the country of China as a as a
2: threat. Well, there's a difference between the country of China and the individuals who live in China. Um, so you know, I've always looked at it that way myself. You know, China may be the threat, but the people there are probably no more dangerous than, than we are here in the United States. I'm going to have to take uh, another break here. I am with Jan Erzan. We are talking about MUFON and various things like that. I will have more things up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. If you're interested in MUFON, take a look at their website at MUFON.com. We will be back right after this, so stick around.
7: Get both the book and the DVD—a forty-dollar value for only nineteen dollars ninety-nine cents. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's l a m a r z u l l i.net.
5: You have heard of the X Zone? Now watch it on Simo TV, plus five hundred video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more.
0: I'm here chatting with
2: John Jan, Jan uh, Harzan from MUFA. I'm going to take the conversation in a bit of a different direction here, and it's something I wanted to talk to you about. In one of the last issues of the Mufan Journal, Don Burlinson had an article, and Don, Don Burlinson's a friend of mine. I know him well, and he's been on the program, and I asked him about this. But he had a story in there about the, um, uh, mentioning the Socorro landing, and a discussion of the symbol seen on it. And I don't want to go into the which symbol it really was because I think we've discussed that at at length at various places. I know Ben Moss and Tony Angelo disagree with what, what I say, and they disagree with me, and all of that sort of thing. But um, the thing that bothered me about this article is he mentioned in there that the military would have briefed their pirate pilots, their pirates, their pilots in a secret meeting. Um, about the symbol seen on the side of the craft that Lonnie Zamora saw. And uh, in questioning him about that, uh, he said that he believed that's what would have happened. And I thought that um, he was basically suggesting he made that up. And I wondered about the vetting of the articles in the MUFON journal, because that, that really is kind of worrisome. And, and I say that because as a writer... You know, and using all these various sources, remember people using a single source is plagiarism, using five sources is research, um, that, that you go back and you say, well, the military briefed their pilots on what the symbol was, and you source it back to the MUFON journal and Don Berlinson's story, but it turns out he had no source. He had no pilot telling him about that, and I, I, wondered, I wondered about that, and, and is there a way of kind of vetting the articles before they get into the journal?
3: Well, we do have a review process but uh, honestly if it's an author writing a story um unless we if we knew it was false we certainly uh, would not do that but um i'm not sure what you would have us do i mean we, we basically read the stories we try to make sure they make sense uh if it's something we don't think is factually true we certainly wouldn't publish it but we give you know latitude to the authors to publish their research and then of course it's always open to other people to be able to object to it or say no I have other data that would say that's not true and then we could put a letter to the editor to that effect
2: so there's really no vetting of the articles you kind of go with the the author of the of the piece and make sure that it all kind of matches sequentially and, actu- and ac- accurately
3: yeah i i i wouldn't say there's no vetting but uh, but but basically the, the what is stated is, is more the um, preview purview of, of the author who's putting the information out there. I mean, you know, when Stan was around, you know, he would argue vehemently on certain positions on things. And he wasn't shy about putting it in his uh, in his uh, articles that he would write for the journal, um, which then would, of course, enlist uh, uh, elicit other people to write counterpoints to it. So you get people going back and forth. Um, I, I, as long as it's a, a conversation and not a, 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 a fisticuff fight, you know, I'm fine for letting things uh, be be discussed out in the journal itself, um, perhaps even on the website, in discussion type forum type things.
2: Well, as I say, the, the problem I had, and and talking to Don about this, he said he uh, used language that was suggestive of it being a speculation on his part, as opposed to being uh, an established fact. And I just wondered, when you're reading this sort of thing, especially in something like the Mufon Journal, if the the reader actually picks up on the hesitation of the author to state it as a positive fact, but kind of use weasel words to get around that. And this one, this one really bothered me, because as a military pilot, I, w- I knew that There would have been no briefing, secret or otherwise, on what the symbol looked like. And I think Don's uh, reasoning behind that was that um, the the military would have wanted the pilots to know what the symbol looked like, so they would be looking for the the right thing. And I'm thinking, no, you don't need to do that, because uh, when the pilot comes back and he tells you what the symbol was, if you've already briefed him on it, then you've kind of contaminated the credibility, not the credibility, but the confirmation of the sighting. And if you don't tell him and he comes back and he's got the right symbol, then you, then you, you've got something very interesting there. So I was, I was kind of bothered by that when I read it in the, uh, in the journal. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, this whole thing on the symbol has been, been much debated And race Stanford, who was the original nightcap investigator on the case, um, claims that he purposely, uh, didn't publish what it looked like because he wanted as other witnesses would come forward, wanted to know that they had actually seen the craft, um, that's a whole other discussion. But to me, the symbol is kind of the least of it. I mean, there either was a craft or there wasn't a craft. And it either no, no,
2: the, the, it, the, yeah. the, you're right. The symbol in this conversation is not the important point. The point was that that, that Don had created in his mind this briefing about the symbol to uh, the military pilots. And it was something that just simply was not, it was speculation on his part to be kind yeah. about it. Yeah, so um, that, should,
3: that. that should normally be called out in an article that this is speculation. I, when I go on radio shows, I always say, this is what I know for a fact, and this is what I believe to be true, but, you know, can't corroborate. I mean, I think pe- I think we all need to be careful. We we, we want to work from facts, but you can't always work from facts. So a lot of people, unfortunately, most of what's in the UFO field is people's personal beliefs more than, than actual facts. So,
2: Well, that's the problem. The problem with the field is people want to validate their belief structure as opposed to learning what the truth may be, their belief structure may be inaccurate. And that, I guess, uh, affects them personally. And they would rather reject the facts to continue with their beliefs.
5: Yeah.
3: It's not just the UFO field, though. This happens in every other avenue of life as well. I mean, so that's what we try to do. We try to get down to the facts. You know, was the person really there? Did they really see it? Do they really have the credentials they claim they have? The things that we were talking about earlier in the segment, um, that's all we can do. But uh, your point's well taken, and uh, I'll have to go back and reread the article, see what it said. We can always add to it or subtract from it.
2: Well, then I'll bring up one other point, which is not quite as critical, but he um, has an affidavit from somebody involved with the landing at um, Hulliman Air Force Base in April of 1964 Um, but it doesn't seem that anybody involved in that affidavit had firsthand knowledge. It was all, my father told me this, or I heard this from a friend type thing. Right. So the, so that information, while interesting, um, wasn't really overly useful.
3: Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, the, the Roswell crash, which occurred what, 60 some plus years ago now, more than 70, 70 some plus years from now. Uh, back in time. When uh, Stan was investigating that, Stan Stan Friedman, uh, he put together a a nice reel of first and second-hand witnesses. Well, obviously, first-hand witnesses count a lot more than a second-hand witness, but you had a lot of the kids who parents told them stories that were related on that. It was called Recollections of Roswell, which is an excellent piece. It can be acquired through the Fund for UFO Research, Um, but When I watched that and I listened to these firsthand witnesses talk about that crash um, and saw the terror in their eyes and what they went through, um, it it was a real shakeup for me. I mean, we always want firsthand witnesses whenever possible. I would agree.
2: And, and firsthand witnesses whose stories can be corroborated. So you say, right. well, I was in Roswell and this is what I saw. Right. and You go back to all the records and you find out that, you know, guy, you weren't in Roswell at the time. Uh, what's going on here? And I think of a guy named Throwbridge and his obituary. It said he may have been the last guy to last living guy to have handled the Roswell debris. And you go back and you look at it. And yeah, he was in Roswell at the time. But his story, as he told it, made absolutely no sense. And that, and that's what bothers me. And that's why I do Chasing Footnotes, see if I can get to the original source of the story and find out what it actually is, as opposed to what has been printed and said about it uh, down the road.
3: Absolutely, absolutely. You know, one of the things we're starting uh, within MUFON here is called The Greatest Questions. Uh, it hasn't seen the light of day from, from the uh, website yet, but uh, if you remember Dan Wright, who was our director of investigations for a number of years back in the 80s, early 90s, um he's taken on this project to basically write 25 questions and we put those out to our phd and master's level members to answer answer and we're we've got oh i think over 50 or 60 uh theses on these different questions trying to delve into the ufo question and think you know like how does faster light travel work why don't these things create a sonic boom um, why is it that every time one of these people is on board a craft they can breathe the atmosphere that the aliens breathe does that mean that everybody breathes oxygen and nitrogen um things of this nature you know radiation burns um effects on our religious structure um so we're asking these questions and we're going to start publishing this on the website and opening it up to the public to be able to uh, join that conversation to to try to add a more scientific bent to the whole subject of ufos and what's being observed and what's being reported and possibly how it could happen and, and what our physics, our sciences are telling us about those things. So I want to mention that here because I think that's an important step forward.
2: Well, I, I wish we'd gotten into that a little earlier in the program because I think that's a fascinating uh, avenue to travel. Yeah. But unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, Jan Herzon, thank you for joining us on a different specific, a different perspective. I got tongue tangled there. Uh, with a different perspective for some reason. Appreciate your time and uh, the information you provided with us. And uh, we'll have to have you back sometime before uh, I get to 203
3: programs. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be awesome. I'd look forward to it. Thanks, Kevin.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, Once again, that was Jan Harzon at the Executive Director of MUFON. It's MUFON.com to take a look at. If you um, have interest in some of this information we talked about, you can find information about it on my blog. You can look up the Uh, interview with Don Berlinson, where I actually quizzed him about the um, uh, article in the MUFON journal and that sort of thing. Um, Once again, take a look at www w.kevinrandall.blogspot.com take a visit there just take a visit there see what's going on see if I can boost the numbers a little bit uh, the book was Roswell in the 21st Century which deals with some of the problems with the Roswell case and the other book is Encounters in the Desert where I do in depth look at the controversy over the symbol and who is right on that who is wrong on that and where we're going with that next week I'll be joined by Charles Halt to talk about the um Windowsham case, and uh, later on I'll be talk- talking to Michael Shermer on the skeptical side of the fence. So uh, look for us in about 167 hours. Thank you for listening.